0: Hello, and welcome to this FRDH, First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. A personal sense of déjà vu all over again overwhelms the first month of 2022. Today's geopolitical crisis, Russia menacing Ukraine, and Britain's domestic political crisis imposed by the Conservative Party and its factions on the rest of us, reminds me of events a nice round 30 years ago is this an example of history repeating itself second time as farce no this is too deadly is this an example of its cyclical nature history as a falcon turning and returning to a parallel place in an ever-widening gyre maybe Perhaps it's simply an example of what happens when governments don't fix flaws in international institutions so that they remain incapable of dealing with problems before they become crises. And in domestic politics, factions forming around a fundamental question, like British membership of the EU, that become impervious to facts and incapable of learning from mistakes made within living memory. Thirty years ago, former Yugoslavia violently disintegrated. Europe, in inverted commas, tried to find a united response to the crisis. The continent's big three powers, Germany, France, and Great Britain, could barely agree on when to meet for coffee. The only thing they seemed united on was that the situation should be managed by European nations. The U.S. should stay out. With the presidential election approaching, the first President Bush's team were only too happy to honor that request. The U.S. stayed away until it was too embarrassing because genocide in an area circumscribed by NATO countries and the EU and with UN peacekeepers deployed was not something the leader of the so-called free world could tolerate at that moment the cold war was over the soviet union no longer existed the very idea of a Pax americana of liberal democratic values was being called into question by ethno-nationalists who belonged more to the nineteenth century than a new world order on the brink of the twenty-first i know whereof i speak my npr beat during the bosnian crisis was covering the diplomacy to prevent it and then to end it failure after failure the european community in the process of negotiating new arrangements to become the european union never spoke with one voice because there was no common foreign or defence policy during the electoral campaign before the brexit referendum many lies were told by those advocating leaving the eu one of the lesser ones, because too many voters don't pay attention to policy issues, was that Britain was somehow not in charge of its foreign or Defense policy. It had lost sovereignty over those areas. That was just untrue. Neither Britain nor France, with their independent nuclear arsenals and seats on the UN Security Council, were willing to surrender the authority of their positions to a new collective Europe-wide entity the fall of the wall a few years earlier had brought an end to germany's age of atonement and the newly reunified country's leaders were similarly disinterested in surrendering foreign policy its primary tool for projecting its economic power in the world thirty years ago european political leaders were negotiating to create a europe-wide single currency No more Deutschmark or Frank or Gilda or Lira or Peso. The euro would come into being, and a Europe-wide form of citizenship would be created. Britain would opt out of some of those arrangements. More on that in a few minutes. The new arrangements were to be agreed at a summit in the Dutch city of Maastricht in early 1992. The negotiations leading up to that summit took up all the EU leaders' available bandwidth. And while these preliminary discussions were going on, Yugoslavia was falling apart. Slovenia and Croatia declared their independence. At the prompting of its foreign minister, Hans-Dietrich Genscher, Germany recognized both as independent states. Other national leaders urged caution, but Genscher was having none of it. Newly united and re-empowered, recognition was a statement of German big-power politics. Genscher's action hastened Yugoslavia's violent disintegration as the Serb-led rump of Yugoslavia fought Croatia for territory. Then the leaders of Serbia and Croatia, Slobodan Milosevic and Franjo Tudjman, turned their military forces towards multi-ethnic, multi-confessional Bosnia-Herzegovina, which by then had also declared independence. They hoped to effectively carve Bosnia up between them, and as for Bosnia's majority Muslim population who lived in the country, too bad. They would be ethnically cleansed, a new term for an old practice. The violence was appalling. Concentration camps reemerged in Europe 40 years after World War II, rape hotels, and at Srebrenica, in theory, a UN safe haven, a genocidal massacre of more than 8,000 Muslim men and boys. That last event finally forced America's hand. Using its position as first among equals in NATO, the U.S. pushed the alliance to authorize action. NATO jets bombed the Bosnian Serbs in their headquarters at a ski resort in the mountains near Sarajevo. Two months later, there was a ceasefire. The leaders of Bosnia, Croatia, and Serbia were dragged off to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio, where they were browbeaten by Richard Holbrook into signing the Dayton Agreement but let's circle back to 1992 while war was going on in the balkans another story on my plate was the continuing agony of britain's conservative party over the issue of europe the then british prime minister john major had come into office without winning an election the tories had forced margaret thatcher to resign in part because of her intransigence over the issue of europe and the deepening of federal ties among members of the eu ties that would be ratified at Maastricht. Many members of her party wanted Britain to join in those steps. Thatcher was implacably against a more federal European Union. After she was deposed, she was replaced by Major, who managed to keep Britain out of the most significant of these moves, the single currency. The Maastricht Treaty was signed in February 1992. In April, The same week war began in Bosnia-Herzegovina, Major unexpectedly led the Conservatives to victory in a general election. The party received a record number of votes, a record that still stands. Was he treated with respect by his fellow Conservatives? No. For the five years of his term, he was hounded by the anti-Europeans in the party. They hardened into a faction, relentlessly pursuing getting Britain out of the EU. Ultimately, they succeeded. And now for the déjà vu. When it comes to the Ukraine crisis, Germany and France are still pulling in different directions from the U.S. The French president, Emmanuel Macron, has called for Europe to have its own dialogue with Russia over Ukraine. I think that it is good for there to be coordination between Europe and the U.S., but it is vital that Europe has its own dialogue with Russia. Macron said recently... German Chancellor Olaf Scholz has called for prudent sanctions should Russia invade Ukraine. The difference between prudence and unprecedented sanctions, President Joe Biden's adjective of choice, gives a hint of the vast difference of opinion between the U.S. and Germany. And as the Ukraine crisis reaches its climax, the U.K. is hors de combat, out of the EU and ineffectively governed by a greatly diminished Tory party. After major surprise victory in 1992, it would be more than two decades before the Tories won another election. The anti-EU faction was busy fighting its fellow conservatives, which made the party unelectable. In 2015, led by David Cameron, the Tories finally won a small majority. The anti-EU faction had taken over the party by then, and to appease them, Cameron promised a referendum on continued British membership of the EU. He campaigned to remain, and lost, and immediately resigned. Today, the party is led by Cameron's contemporary, at both Eton and Oxford, Boris Johnson. There are still a few anti-EU conservative backbench MPs who made John Major's life hell, but a whole younger generation of anti-EU factionalists essentially drive the Tory party, impervious to learning the lessons of history. Brexit is their achievement, as are the 17-kilometer tailbacks of lorries heading to the port of Dover because of post-Brexit paperwork. There are still daily arguments in the British press about the UK and the EU, as if it was still 1992. Finally, resurgent ethno-nationalism in Bosnia is threatening to undo the imperfect Dayton Peace Agreement. I may yet do a whole podcast about it. The situation is very dangerous. But you can only take déjà vu so far, and there are obviously big differences now. The first is Russia. In 1992, Russia had only just come back into being. The USSR officially ended as a state in December 1991. No one really had any idea who or what would happen next. The leadership in Moscow was in no position to deal with the crisis in its Balkan sphere of influence. Ukraine is adjacent to Russia. Bosnia is not. Russia is led by a man who has said the collapse of the USSR was the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century, although Vladimir Putin, like Serbia's Sobodan Milosevic, has abandoned Marxist-Leninism in favor of ethno-nationalism. And Joe Biden, unlike George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton, is trying to lead the Western response from the front. The leaks in late November of 2021 to the Washington Post and New York Times about a Russian military buildup, which was the first many of us were aware of what was going on, were authorized to focus attention on Ukraine and to bring pressure on the EU and NATO governments to prepare and act in concert to deter Putin. These are big differences between then and now, and will certainly affect the way the Ukraine crisis plays out. And this, on the American side, is perhaps the biggest difference of all. By the spring of 1994, the slaughter in Bosnia became impossible to ignore, as well as the utter failure of European and UN initiatives to end it. The U.S. had to take the lead. Two senators, Kansas Republican Bob Dole and Delaware's Joe Biden publicly demanded the Clinton administration pursue a policy called lift and strike. Lift the arms embargo, preventing weapons going to Bosnia's Muslim so they could finally defend themselves and strike back against the Bosnian Serb onslaught. In autumn 1994, the Republicans took control of both houses of Congress for the first time in four decades. Newt Gingrich brought a new, implacable spirit of partisanship to the role of Speaker of the House. Anything that might benefit Bill Clinton, Gingrich was opposed to. Peace in Bosnia included. Bob Dole, a hard-line conservative by any definition, made it clear to Clinton that he would back any administration action in Bosnia. Dole, grievously wounded fighting fascism in World War II, was not about to tolerate its resurgence in post-Cold War Europe. He did the necessary arm-twisting among Republicans, and Clinton was able to act to end the killing in Bosnia. That kind of bipartisanship no longer exists in the American Congress. Like Britain's conservatives, the Republicans are a faction, impervious to the necessary compromises required to keep a democratic legislature functioning. Is there a senior Republican in Congress today who will back Biden if the Ukraine crisis should escalate beyond the need for unprecedented sanctions to something involving more concrete military action? And that's all for this FRDH podcast. You can hear more, hours more, at the website. There are currently 157 episodes available, interviews, long-form documentaries, pieces about religion and philosophy, and history lessons like this one. Please visit and make a donation, one time only, or a small monthly gift. Some people do that, And they really do help to keep the podcasts coming. Thanks.